Good evening, everyone. Nice to be with you again this evening. So, does anyone have any questions? Uh, purging the enjoying spirit, does that include the enjoying association with devotees? Uh, could you expand on, on, on that, the purging of the enjoying spirit? Mm-hmm. No, it doesn't. Life is enjoyable by nature. Therefore, although sometimes we may recoil against the, uh, well, pretty common in California phrase, enjoy, because we think, well, we should serve, not enjoy. Actually, if you listen in another way, you can appreciate it. Anandamayo Byasat. Sutras tell us that the nature of reality is Anandamay, filled with joy. So, if Bhagwan, Brahman, the Absolute, is filled with joy, moves out of joy, that is the difference between Leela and Karma, both are movements. One is out of necessity, and one is out of joy. The movements of the have-nots and haves. You follow me? In other words, when we identify with matter, then we have perceived needs. So we pursue them. And I owe, I owe, so off to work I go, they say. This is movement in the realm of karma, where we really, we move a lot, but we don't really go anywhere. If we go anywhere, we go backwards. We incur debt by that movement, because all that movement is, involves taking. And that taking is born out of a perceived necessity that is um, false. We don't need We don't need to add anything onto our life in order to become full. We need to take things out of our life that we have added on. Desires, needs, perceived needs. We are a bundle of these. We are our desires. We are our our attachments, materially speaking. That's what we are. That's why when Arjuna was taken between the two armies, Rishi Krishna Parthasarati, the battle of Kurukshetra, Arjuna said, Take me between the two armies, let us see who's assembled here. Arjuna took him between the two armies and he stopped right in front of Bhishma and Rona, who, out of everyone on the other side, Arjuna was most attached to. His teacher, Drona, his guru, in terms of his dharma, as a chatriya, as a warrior, Drona, and Bhishma, who really was, for all intents and purposes, his father, his grandfather, but he raised him, brought him up, and, and this is who we had to fight with. So, this is the first thing that Krishna does in the Gita, and the first thing he says, oh, just see who's assembled here. And he stops, as I say, right in front of Drona and Bhishma mentions them. Krishna's movements, although they're free, independent, spontaneous, out of love, they're pregnant with meaning for all of us. That plane of love makes knowledge a small thing. That's true. We call it Gyan Shunya Bhakti. Mahaprabhu like this. This is a 
term, of course, used in Chaitanya Charitamrita when he heard from Raya Ramananda. When he began to speak about devotion unencumbered by knowledge, then Mahaprabhu was receptive. Yes, now you're on to something, he said. Let's, you, you hit a vein. Let's mine this as far as it will go. And they did. The two, Rai Ramananda and Gaurav Mahaprabhu, they, they mined that vein, and of course they ended up in, in the highest ideal, what Chaitanya Dev himself represents, embodies love of Radha and Krishna, Radha's love for Krishna, and so on. And so Gyan Sunya Bhakti, especially the Brajlila of Vrindavan, this is, of course, the case. Knowledge is there, but it's not needed. But if someone from there comes here, then, well, those young ladies have a lot of knowledge. In the Lila, they're uneducated. But when they come here, we find that, oh, goodness, they, they know so much. You understand? As devotees coming, like Rup, Sanatana, Usami, and so forth. Just like the United States is the most powerful military-industrial complex, but we don't see tanks and missiles on every street corner because that would interfere with the peaceful interaction amongst the people. But if somebody should attack the nation, then they will be everywhere, right? So they're, under, they're underground, so to speak. It's like that power. It takes power in a play to have freedom. So this, that's why Krishna is Bhagwan, Swayam Bhagwan, because he's only playing. It means he must have all power. He's free to play all the time. That's all. You know, if you, you have, to, if to, to play, you have to work. You have to build a power base. You have to get time off and right, compensation and savings and so forth. So that leela is moving freely and so forth, but it's full of knowledge for us with every movement. So he brought the chariot right there in between the two armies, stopped in front of Bijaman Arjun and said, this is what you have to contend with. And this, looking at those two, he said, that's me, practically Arjun. That's me I have to contend with. I have to kill myself. That's my teacher. In other words, Arjun so much identified with his teacher as a student that, you see, that his sense of being a student was dependent upon his having the teacher and his identity based on desire and attachment for Bhishma. So our attachments, our desires, that is what forms our identity. Materially speaking, we are our desires, a composite of so many desires and attachments. And so our dream was told in the very beginning, you have to kill yourself. That sense of self that is derived from attachments. And it's very profound that such a thing could come, should come in the very beginning of the Bhagavad in the first chapter, which is sometimes skimmed over as just a history. It's telling us right there, you have to digest this. Otherwise, you don't understand anything. However well you can cite the verses, or it might mean this, it might mean that, and there are different interpretations of the Gita and so forth. There are Vaishnava interpretations, there are monistic interpretations, there are secular, social, political interpretations of the Gita and so forth. In the very beginning, we were told, <laughs> it's a spiritual book. And this is the doorway here. You, you have to die to live. You have to die. You have to kill the killing tenants. You know, we live here by killing. Takers, the hunted and the hunter, hunters and hunted. So we're hunting, and you look over your shoulder, you realize you're hunted also. We are on the take because of a perceived necessity owing to 
identifying with matter. So we can't be givers in the full sense, only, only to the extent that we can come out from underneath that perceived necessity. So that's why God-realization is prefaced in a sense by self-realization, to love, to know what you are. So Leela is one thing, karma is another. Karma is movement out of necessity. And Leela is movement that is free, without necessity, out of joy. So ultimately, this reality is moving out of joy. The world, even the world of our karmic involvement, what does the sutra say about that? Lokavatu Leela Kaivalyam. This is Shristi Leela. Lokavat means the world. Means the world is born out of joy, out of love. So it's not really, from another perspective, from Bhagwan's perspective, a place of misery. That's our take on the whole thing. Like we were speaking this morning, where is the material world? How big is it? It's true, there are this many miles of so many, what is it, ten times earth, ten times so forth. But then you just get to the end of the universe, and then, you know, there's so many universes, universe in the atom, and so on. Maya means to measure. It's immeasurable, and we're trying to measure it. Existence, reality, we're trying to measure it, and it escapes being measured. So as much as we try to measure it, means to bring it in the grasp of our intellect, we can't know what it is. We will mistake it to be something other than what it is, and we'll act based on that mistaken conception. And therefore we will not be happy, we will not enjoy, we will not taste the real nature of reality, which is joyful, ananda-maya-obhyasat. So when people say enjoy, one way to react to that is, well, you know, we shouldn't enjoy, we should serve. But another way is, yeah, they got it. If you really know how to listen. All, you can only hear Krishna consciousness everywhere. That's a fact. <laughs> all names, names for God. All words pointing to God. And this is what Mahaprabhu realized. Nam nama karhi bahudani desaiva shaktista tarapita niyamitismaranayakala Nam nama karhi Many names you have. You have many, many names. Unlimited names. Of course, nam namakari bahudani sarva-shaktis. In one sense, he's talking about certain kinds of names, which are sarva-shakti, names that are filled with his shakti. So these are primary names of God rather than secondary names of God, like great, the Great One, you know, the Enlightened One, the Creator. These would be secondary names of God. Th- these are names of God that don't talk about God in terms of his Swarup Shakti that makes the Leela go round. Krishna Swayam Bhagavan, Shiradika's Swayam Shakti. So she's making the whole thing go round. He's dancing, that's true. Amishishya Guru Natha, he says. I'm the, the disciple and you're the teacher. I'm known as a great dancer, but you're you're the guru, he says about Radha. She's making him dance. So, nam namakari bahudani disarva shaktis, in one sense, yes, this is about primary names of God, he's speaking. It's Sri Krishna, Sankirtan. 
But the fact of the matter is, as the sutras also tell us, all names are names of God. All words pointing to God. And Chaitanya Dev also demonstrated that, didn't he? When he began to manifest himself as a bhakta, as a devotee, he had so much jnana. There was Navodvip, and it was Nadia, Nadia. It's kind of derived from the preoccupation. It was a Navonyaya, kind of a reformed, uh, contemporary form of logic and so forth. Mahaprabhu was very well schooled in this. Therefore, he was given the name Nimai Pandit. So learned he was. So learned that when the Digvijay, Keshav Kashmiri, came to Nadia to conquer, debate and conquer, all the big scholars left town. And they thought, Nimai Pandit is there as a boy. So if he debates with Nimai Pandit and loses, and Nimai Pandit loses, then we can say, oh, well, anyway, you came to Nadia, but you, we, the big scholars weren't there. One of our boys only you defeated. And, and this was their hope. And they weren't even devotees. And if he wins, and he could, he just might. This is how they thought. Then what would be the glory of Nadia? Just from a secular point of view, they're thinking. This is the, like, Pogandalila of Gaurav Mahaprabhu. With his students on the bank of the Ganges, playing games, and playing games with knowledge, making a game out of knowledge. We pride and uh, value knowledge so much, but it's a, such a small thing. It's so insignificant. Love just drowns this knowledge. In one sense, love is the highest knowledge. That's true. We know that from the Gita. What does Krishna say? In the ninth chapter, he says, Rajavidya Rajaguyam. What does that mean? I'm going to give you the highest knowledge, Rajavidya. So what does he say at the end of the chapter? This is the highest knowledge. Be my devotee. Love is really the highest knowledge. It's like that kind of essential knowledge. No extra baggage. No knowing that you're just carrying, that's burdening you. And it burdens you in so many ways. One way, big way in which knowledge burdens you is that by collecting non-essential knowledge, we foster our non, our false sense of identity because we, we use that knowledge. We show that knowledge off. We draw attention to ourselves. Well, this is a bad idea. So knowledge, that's really a small thing. What is it? All the learning that is going on. There is a purpose to it. In and of itself, it is not fulfilling. Love, this is what life is about. There we can find ananda, joy, happiness, fulfillment. And there's essential knowing in that. When you love, then you know what to do. You know, it's, it's automatic knowing. So just a boy, Nimai Pandit, of course, he defeated that case of Kashmiri on the bank of the Ganges. Nadia was so proud then. And Mahaprabhu was just playing games with knowledge. That's all. He would make a point, then no one could defeat it. And then he would defeat it. And then it convinced everybody. And then he would defeat that, back to the original proposal. This way, he was, he was playing a game with knowledge. He was showing what a small thing is knowledge. And then he, became, he manifested himself as devotee and he, he put it down. 
To do what? Just to sing and dance. You have to understand, that's why Prakashananda Sarasri thought this man has no knowledge in Banaris, which is a place of learning. Mahaprabhu passed through Banaris to go to Vrindavan. And what did he do there? He sang and danced and ignored the Prakashananda Sarasvati. Ignored him. That's how Mahaprabhu converted him, by ignoring him. Because by ignoring him, then he became more interested in him. What's he about? Invite him over here. Tell him he should come. But he accused him. Oh, he's a babuka. babuka. He's right. <laughs> he means a sentimentalist. He's a sannyasi, but he's singing and dancing, playing musical instruments, carrying on like this, not very sober. Mahaprabhu passed through there. So we have to pass through that. There, all Mayavadis there, their pride in knowledge and so forth. They ignore that. Of course, on the way back, he stopped there again and defeated them all, turned them into devotees, showing the power of devotion. After going to Vrindavan and coming back. Hmm? So knowledge is a small thing, and love is a big thing. But when Mahabhu became a devotee or manifested, manifested himself, his lila, as, as a devotee, and put down the knowledge that he was making a plaything of. Then he also be, he was a teacher in the school. And so, what did he teach? He only taught about Krishna Bhakti. He taught every word means Krishna. The students were listening. And what what is what is this? Every word, every syllable. Then he would explain it. How it is talking about Krishna, Krishna. So he became mad like this. So he demonstrated this. That what? That all sounds are about Krishna. This is very high realization. To, just to hear it in the right way. Mahabhu danced Idratiyatra in front of the Jagannath cart. What song did he sing? Cinema song. That's right. He sang the equivalent of a cinema song. There were no cinemas at the time. But he saw, sang a secular love song from Sahitya Darpana. Sahitya Darpana is a secular Ras Shastra book about dramatics, poetry and so forth, and how to how the hero should act and how the heroine should act in this circumstance, what type of heroes, heroines and so on and so forth. It's a whole art, right? Well he sang this song from Sahitya Darpana. People thought, What this is a religious festival, sir. What is what's going on? What is this? Of course, he was in ecstasy, and so people were stunned, but they didn't know what he was really about. And therefore, what? Our pranam to Rupa, he could understand. He could understand what a debt we have. Who can understand? Who could understand the thing for what it was? We offer our pranam to him. I remember once, many, many years ago, Guru Kripa Swami said to me, Namo Mahavadanaya, that's how he used to talk. Namo Mahavadanaya, Krishna Prema Pradayate, Krishnaya Krishna Chaitanya Namne Gorakrishna Namo. What do you think of when you hear this? He was a sannyasi and I was a student, Brahmachari. What do you think of when you hear this verse? So I knew, okay, I'm not going to give the standard answer because he's obviously got some other point in mind that he wants to make here. And I, I, of course, I knew the translation and everything. So I wanted to hear, I said, oh, well, you tell me what? And he said, Rupa Goswami. 
I appreciated the point very much. Rupa Shirupa had written the verse. In the verse, it is explaining who is Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and what a, what a debt we owe more to the devotee than to Bhagawan. Right? What's more important, the gift or the giver? First the giver, then the gift. And is the giver only a footnote to the gift? Hardly. The giver really looms large and really larger than the, than the gift. In fact, it might be a small thing that we give, or it might be a big thing. That we give. The th- it's the thought that counts, they say, the giver. Mahabharata was the giver. Kaviraj Goswami says, like a fountain, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, like a fountain, from which water flows in all directions. Waves of Krishna Leela going in all directions, coming from the fountain of Gaur Leela. So, who comes first? Ekatmano bapi bhuvi deham vedo gato chaitanya kyam prakatam adunatta dayam chaikyam aptam. Radha Krishna pranai vikriti ladini shakti rasmad. There is Krishna. He's one. He becomes two. The two become one in a dynamic way. That's Mahaprabhu. What comes first? Gorlila or Krishna Lila? Gorlila takes us to Krishna Lila. And if we go deep into Krishna Lila, where do we end up? We end up in Gorlila. As deep as you can go into Krishna Lila. What is the zenith of the Krishna Lila? Is Rasa Lila. That's the high point of the of Bhagavatam, for example. And what do we find there? The debt. Krishna admits, I'm a debtor. What does he say? Napareham, famous verse. I'm in debt. Of course, what does he do? He's tricky. <laughs> so he's in debt. So then he tries to steal. He tries to steal Radha's love to taste it himself. This is, of course, as I've said, an existential crisis for Krishna. He is the supreme enjoyer. He's Rasaraj. But now he's finding someone is experiencing and tasting a measure of love, joy that he doesn't have experience of. So it brings into question his own existence. It's an existential crisis for him. He has to try to solve that crisis. So, of course, man acts according to his nature. So he tried to steal it. Makanchor becomes, you know, a big thief. The beginning he steals butter as a boy. When he grows up, the stakes go up. Habits learned in youth, you know, are hard to overcome. So true to his nature, he tried to steal Radha's love. And then, of course, he has to hide. So very smart as he is, as I've said before, where does the dark man go? He hides in Kali Yuga, the dark age. But it's a problem because what he's carrying is full of light, fulgent. So he's easily detectable. Therefore, he gave it all away. But the more he gave it away, the more he shined. His devotees could understand him. And then ultimately, they made him confess. That is, of course, his Shikshastakam. At the hands of Lalita and uh, Vishaka, Surup Damodar and Rai Ramananda, he confessed. Yes, I've done it. And only when he confessed did they agree, well, now you can have it fully. You can experience it fully. It's not his really to take. This is high theology, of course. 
show. What comes first, Gaur Leela or Krishna Leela? You can't talk about Gaur Leela without talking about Krishna Leela. And Kaviraj Goswami says you can't talk about Krishna without talking about Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, without invoking my wrath. He says, what is the meaning to this? What is the meaning to talking about Krishna and expressing devotion for Krishna without expressing devotion to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu? He said it's like Jarasandha. Jarasandha worshipped God. He followed Varnashram. That's a method of worshipping God. What else did he do? Yeah, he followed Varnashram. He was very, but, but what else did he do? He tried to kill Krishna. Therefore, we consider that demonic, right? Tried to kill Krishna 18 times. But he worshipped Bhagwan by following the Barnashram. That's this is general system for worshipping God, for being a good citizen, following the Dharma Shastra. There was a guy in, I think it was in California recently, who President Bush was there recently. And so they, he called up this guy, and uh, I think it was in the South Bay, the San Francisco area. And he was a retired man who had been doing a lot of charity for other citizens, teaching elderly people how to use the computer. So their life, you know, at the old age home would be a little more exciting. And so he, you know, I mean, it was a good thing for people, you know, relatively speaking, teaching them how to use the computer, older people. They'd have something more meaningful that, you know, and they really appreciate it. Anyway, so point is he was doing charitable work. And there are other people doing charitable work, but the, but the president heard about this guy and, and singled him out, called him up and gave him an award or something like Good Citizen Award. He was honored by that and so forth. So if you follow the Varnashram, it means like you become a good citizen. You may be noticed in general. In general, you'll be noticed by Bhagwan. Maybe there's a rare chance that he might personally single you out for something. But this is a very, very, very kind of general way of worshipping God. It's not very direct. Bhakti, therefore, who has adhikar for bhakti, faith in, in bhakti, which comes from up to down. That's how faith comes. Faith is of different shades. Faith in sattva-guna, faith in tamaguna, faith in rajaguna, and transcendental faith. Krishna says in Bhagavatam to Uddhava, this kind of faith is tamasic, this kind of faith is rajasic. Faith in in the scripture is sattvic, and faith in me is transcendental. Where does it come? How do you get faith? Where does faith come from? It comes from agyata sukriti, which turns to gyata sukriti, and then turns into shraddha. Without knowledge, without knowing, engaging in bhakti, hearing from bhakta, serving a devotee, chanting the name, coming before the deity, and so forth, without understanding what that's about at all, without any understanding. So faith comes from that side. This generates then a kind of merit, we call it, sukriti. And from that, it develops into partial understanding. In other words, let's go to the temple. That's neat. That's a good thing to do. Let's take this Sunday and go to the temple, the Krishna temple. They've got good food over there. And I, I like the dancing, and uh, it's a good thing. So they go. They're bringing somebody else who doesn't know anything about it. Come on, we'll take you along. So that person is agyata sukriti. Somebody else has more gyata sukriti. 
And over time, it turns into faith, shraddha. And then they take up the process, right? They have adhikar for that. Oh, so this then it gives access to serving God and ultimately in intimacy, you know, much more uh, power than to commune with God than simply by following the Varnashram. Some siddhir haditoshanam. The perfection of activity lies in haditoshanam, pleasing hari. So to come to bhakti, then, through all of this, this is our ideal. We have eligibility for that. We are gathered for this, this purpose. And it's enjoyable, right? So we should purge ourselves of the enjoying spirit. The, the enjoying spirit means that which leads me to believe that I am superior to others and other things. Therefore, humility is the absence of the enjoying spirit. You understand me? If you are the enjoyer and you're superior to the thing that's being enjoyed, it exists for your purpose. But things don't exist for our purpose, the purpose that we have in our head, which is, again, just a bundle of, as we began, desires, our attachments. This is all about life of taking and exploiting. It's not a life that is governed by the decorum mandated by Mahaprabhu. He's giving a code of behavior for the devotees who are serious, he says. If you want prem, you have to chant and conduct yourself like this. Humble, more humble than a blade of grass. He says, now let me tell you about the kind of chanting by which you can get prem. This is the essence of all his instruction. When Raghunathas Goswami left home and came to Puri to join Mahaprabhu, Mahaprabhu put him under the care of Sarup Damodar. But Raghunathas wanted to hear something directly from Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. What did Chaitanya Mahaprabhu say? He said, you don't get it. I put you under the care of Sarup Damodar and he knows more than I do. He knows more than I do. I'm not cheating you here by putting you under his care. If you want to look at the sky, you can use a telescope, right? But if I give you a telescope, I'll tell you, see, here's a big lens here, and here's a small one here. Look through the small one. You say, I don't want to be cheated. I'll look through the big one. <laughs> and what will you see? Nothing. You just get a headache. Guru Parampara is like that. The one that's closest to us may look the smallest also in one sense. Oh, there's all these previous acharyas, Bhaktivinoda, so big, Bhaktisiddhanta, Prabhupada, so big. There's the beauty of Parampara. Krishna is coming to us in a form that's just suitable for us, very close to us, before we're cautioned. Guru Avagya, be careful. You can't get too close. You can't stay too far away, like fire. You stay too far away from fire, you won't be able to cook. You won't get warm. If you get too close, you might get burned. So with some caution. Samasta Shastra. So Bhagwan is coming to us in, in this in this form, clo- very close to us, locally. <laughs> Dealing with us like, like one of us in many respects. Eating the same food. Uh, Why caution? 
question because he's not like us entirely. His base of knowledge and realization and way of looking at things is very different. Therefore, the guru is teaching. If we get too close, then familiarity breeds contempt, as they say in common English parlance. So we should regard, oh, the, it's very charming and endearing, our Gurudev's association, but we should have some also keep in a healthy sense. Otherwise, he may say something we may not pay attention and how we will miss out. Guru Abhagya means the order of the guru to disobey. You see how Prabhupada paid attention. What did he used to say? My Guru Maharaj ordered me to speak in the, the English-speaking countries. Did Bhakti Siddhanta order him to do that? No, he didn't. He suggested in one letter, might be good if you uh, preach in English. So Prabhupada didn't have that many conversations with his guru and didn't receive that many letters from him. He took his suggestion as an order, as Guru Nishta. Vyavasyatmika Ekeha Guru Nandana. Yasya Prashada, the Vishwanath comments on that verse, Bhagavad Gita. Yasya Prashada, the Bhagavad Prashada, Yasya Prashada, Nagati Kutubi. The problem with the great Guru Nishta. So he took the suggestion, you know, in a suggestion, like Prabhupada said to me, Where is Yasumati Nandan? Find him. <laughs> I told that story the other night, what I found. Yasumati Nandan, Yasumati Nandan, where is he? What's behind all of this movement? So you have to pay attention to Gurudev. Otherwise, we could miss so much. So this is an import of Guru Avagya, not following his order, not paying attention, not taking advantage. And so much is you're losing, so much opportunity, so much potential. Prabhupada was, was marked by Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasvati Thakur as one who heard very nicely what was the occasion. Sridhar Maharaj, Pujapat Sridhar Maharaj was there also at that time in the Brajmandal Parikram. They were doing the Parikram, around, going around Vrindavan, the place of Krishna's pastimes, camping each night and stopping in each place and discussing the leelas and so forth. And the opportunity came at one place, the camp was there and they were going to go the next day and it was the last night to have the Sheshai Vishnu Darshan. And Prabhupada Bhaktisiddhanta was going to speak that night also. And so I guess as he would every night on the program. So some disciples decided to go and have the darshan of the deity and this to talk because it was the last night before to have the darshan. Others decided to stay and hear. Amongst them was our Prabhupada was there and Sridhar Marshall was one of them also. And later Prabhupada Bhaktisiddhanta referred to those who went as Dandavat disciples. They pay the Dandavat only. They pay the formal respect but they don't have real regard to sit and listen, pay attention. They'd rather go gratify their eyes. What will they see? Hmm? Therefore it's said Vaishnav sees with his ears. Why do we pay respect to Krishna? Why do we offer pranam to the deity? Ben? How do you know that? You don't know that. But you, you have paid your obeisances to the deity, right? How do you know that? How did you How did you come to read Bhagavad Gita? Shri the Prabhupada wrote it. But how did you hear it from Prabhupada? I read it. I found it here, I guess. 
But how did you get the book? How did your mom get the book? Now you've got it. That's the answer. We, we pay obeisance to Krishna because the Vaishnava told us this is Krishna. And same thing with Guru Parampara. You know, sometimes people like to say, well, it's in Prabhupada's book. I'm not faulting you for this, because it isn't. But how did anybody get those books? Some people were out there laboring to make those books available in service to Prabhupada. They were the, the Shakti of Prabhupada to circulate them and so forth. So if we really understand Vaishnavism, then where will our gratitude go? What will be most pleasing to Krishna? What is the most Krishna conscious? You understand? What does Krishna say? Those who say they are my devotee are not my devotee. Those who say they are devotee of my devotee, they are my devotee. So because of the Vaishnav, then we can understand. We should pay our obeisances to Krishna. So so the point is, where is Krishna? Krishna is in the heart of the Vaishnav. So Bhaktisiddhanta said they went to see the deity, but they didn't want to hear. What will they see there? Better they listen. And then when Prabhupada was recommended for initiation, our Prabhupada, Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasattaka said, oh yes, he hears very nicely. It didn't go unnoticed by Prabhupada Bhaktisiddhanta. So we should try to hear very nicely, pay close attention. That is the whole idea. And otherwise we miss something very important. Therefore, Guru Avagya, that is an offense to Nam. It means, in one sense, not paying attention to the Guru. So we should pay careful attention. It's a learning experience. And if we don't pay attention, then we think it's less than a learning experience. We take it casually, and familiarity breeds contempt and, and so forth. So, anyway, they are teaching. Vaishnavism is teaching how to, how to be happy, how to enjoy. We have to give up, we have to purge ourselves of the enjoying spirit. It means we have to purge ourselves of the tendency to think ourselves superior to others, to, even to things, what to speak of to other people. What did Chaitanya Dev say in his poetry? What is he saying there? He's saying, the grass is my guru. I'm learning from the grass. The grass spoke to me and it said, why are you not humble like us? Can't you see? When people step on us, blades, we just bend. We give no resistance. And if someone steps on you and you resist, someone tries to even give you good advice, and you say, oh, he's so proud. Where does the pride lie? You tell me. If that is his service to tell us, do this, don't do that. Understand the scripture like this. Who's a teacher of the scripture? Who's a, who's a commissioned commissioned officer for preaching? Had the uniform and the, and the stick and all this. I mean, it's just a service. We're all the same. But some people have this service to teach. So they have to sometimes speak strongly. That's good for us. Teaching isn't People-pleasing, that's not what it's about. Preaching is not people-pleasing. Not coming to tell a few jokes and a couple stories and things you've already heard and, and everybody thought, that was nice. And, no, it's not like that. It's to challenge your understanding so that you have opportunity to grow. That's preaching. That's real kindness, to push us like that. That's what Prabhupada did. 
So if, to whatever extent I uh, have been commissioned to be a teacher, I had to follow his example. He was pretty pushy. He pushed us. He challenged us. He pushed us off balance. We had a certain way of looking at life, and he deconstructed it. And we were, well, where am I? Where am I? We were moving in a certain direction and at a certain pace and stood up like a brick wall in the train of our life. And, you know, you should shave your head. And everybody was wearing long hair at the time. This was like very disconcerting. He was shaking us at, at the foundation. This is the idea. Just to pat us on the back. He had this very flexible position. Like I said this morning, humility makes one flexible and pride makes one immovable, fortified, unwilling to change. So therefore Mahaprabhu mandated this humility. It's very important. And in doing it, what is he saying to us, really? He said, the grass is talking to me. And I'm listening, he said. I'm listening to the grass. We won't even listen to our own guru. <laughs> Speak of the grass. And here the environment speaking to us. It's all moving according to Krishna's will. Ayur, Harati, Vaipumsam, this is the poetry of the Bhagavatam. With the rising and the setting of the sun, your life is being taken away. The beautiful sun is, is saying something to you. It's not just some ball moving across the sky, or, or really it's not moving across the sky, but the earth is moving, or it is moving, I don't know. Everything's moving dancing and speaking to us. This is the idea. So if you pay attention, that's the whole point. Pay attention. The guru is a focus point. You pay attention there. What happens when you do? You turn around and you find, wow, it's everywhere. It's coming from everywhere. There's good, the environment's friendly. There's good advice everywhere. It's me that's going upstream. I'm going against the current. That's why life is difficult. I should go with the flow, as they say. <laughs> But that requires that we, we have to come in touch with a powerful current. So the guru may say, listen only to me. This is a beginning instruction and an important one. Listen to me. Only listen here. And, he, and when he, when he, he can go after you and make sure you're listening and understanding. Honest, and then he disappears. Right? Then you have to look. And if you listen well, then you can find that kind of well-wishing that kind of advice from him in so many places. The environment is speaking to us. It's friendly, really. That's what Bhagavatam says. Our enemies are our well-wishers. They're helping us to see like that. Mahabharata was seen like that. He had no enemies. This is what Prahlad said. Right? Prahlad's father was Hiranyakasipu. Big demon. So Mahaprabhu, the tree spoke to him. I mean, we live in, how many trees are there here? You can't walk. You can't open your eyes without seeing a tree. How many times have you seen a tree? And how many times have you thought of Mahaprabhu's verse? Ever? <laughs> you see? We have to pay closer attention. Tolerant like the tree. Humble like the grass. The whole environment is speaking. We want to lord over the environment. We want to control. Because we are uncomfortable 
in an unnatural position. We're trying to get control of the whole thing. We're off balance. We're trying to bring everything that we come in touch with under our control. And the point is, it's not under our control. <laughs> That's maya. That's what, the, that's what illusion is. That's why, again, this knowledge is a dangerous thing. And this knowing instrument of intellect, yes, because it's manifest in a prominent way in human society, we're distinguished from the animal species. But we could become a more dangerous beast also, right? By misusing intellect. So it's, it's a powerful thing. But, you know, so is a knife. You can cut yourself or you can... You can butter the bread. So we have to be very careful how we use our intellect. It is not, in and of itself, a suitable vehicle for going back to Godhead, intellect. And if we insist on going in that vehicle, we will be repelled from there. We will be thrown back. If you try to enter there like that, what will happen is you will become filled with doubts. That means that that environment is pushing back on you. We don't want you. That there's no currency here. Just like you have to control your senses, just like you control your mind in yoga, you have to control your intellect also. You have to chasten your intellect. That is called Shastra Yukti. In conjunction with, with Shastra, you have to learn how to think spiritually and conjecture philosophically, with a, from a spiritual base of knowledge. Intellect can be very dangerous. It should be used, but it should not use you. It should be used, it should be harnessed. Mahaprabhu did not try to impose his intellect on the environment, therefore, chintibeda-beda. It doesn't make sense that something could be one and different at the same time, but that's what it was. So he did not try to unexplain that, so to speak, like other Acharyas did. He just acknowledged it. He didn't try to impose his intellect on the environment. Bhagavatam doesn't do that. Bhagavatam is a, gives a good bashing of the intellect. You have to use your intellect to read it, <laughs> to study it. And when you study Bhagavatam with your intellect, what happens? Your intellect just gets bashed. You know, I told that story before about the man who wanted to get an education. The father sent him to Banaris to get an education. The son came back. The father said, so you got an education? He said, yes. He said, oh, what did you study? I studied this book, that book, and this book. And then the father said, did you study Srimad Bhagavatam? He said, I don't think we studied that one. Then you don't have an education, his father said. Go back to Banaris and study Srimad Bhagavatam. So he went back. He studied Srimad Bhagavatam. Then he came back. The father said, so did you study Srimad Bhagavatam? He said, yes. Now I know why you sent me back that book. Or you could throw other, all of the books out. That book is so rich and deep. Um, now I've studied Srimad Bhagavatam. And uh, he said, so did you understand it? He said, yes, I understood your point. I understood Bhagavatam. He said, well, you better go back to Banaris and study Srimad Bhagavatam again. So his son went back. Again, he studied Bhagavatam. Again, he came back. His father said, so did you study? He said, yes, now I understand why he sent me back a second time. I thought I had understood it the first time, and I didn't. So you've understood now? He said, yes, now I've understood Srimad Bhagavatam. Thank you, Father. Father said, back to Benares. <laughs> Study Srimad Bhagavatam. Third time. So he studied Srimad Bhagavatam and he returned to Vrindavan. Father said, so did you study Srimad Bhagavatam a third time? He said, and he hung and said, yes. Did you understand Srimad Bhagavatam? 
No, I cannot understand Srimad Bhagavatam. He said, now you've understood <laughs> Srimad Bhagavatam. Yes. It doesn't fit in the intellect. This is a very small thing, what you can gather there. Very small picture of life. It's like looking through the, a peephole in the fence and trying to say what's on the other side. It's an instrument and it should be used, but it should be controlled. Not that it should control you. So Mahabharata was this, he emphasized these kind of points. That is why he's singing and dancing. He's showing in a way for going based on faith. An emotive approach to the absolute, not an intellectual approach. If you want to try to express what that is, the best way is in song, dance, poetry. Bhagavatam is written in poetry. And it gives a good bashing to the intellect. You have to use your intellect, but oh, it's Gyane Prayashuda Pashyanamunta Eva. Mahaprabhu liked this verse of Brahma, this Brahma speaking, with all four mouths. Oh, he said, this knowledge is a small thing. This intellectual way of going is like going nowhere. Stane stita shutikatam tanuvan manobi. Here from Guru Parampara. This way you can begin to go from whatever position you're in. Sit tight here. Go. It's a descending path. That faith, as I said, which gives us eligibility for bhakti, it comes from up to down. It's not self-generated kind of a thing. You're like in a well, in a dry well in a forest, falling in an overgrown well. How you get out? Yes, someone has to come and throw you the rope. You have to hold on to the rope, of course, but when they pull you to the top, you won't say, boy, I sure held on to that rope pretty good, didn't I? <laughs> no, you'll just say, you saved me, you pulled me out. I said, well, you held on to the rope pretty good. No, no there's nothing, nothing, nothing. <laughs> I did nothing. You did everything. This has been the experience.